Welcome to Paris and Bazcast, where we answer your property and finance-related questions. And here's this week's topic with your hosts, Gurdev and Anmol Singh. Five most negotiated terms in a contract for sale. What are they and what do they mean for you as a buyer or seller? We are about to find out. Welcome to Jared Zach from Dot and Crosses Solicitors. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Jared. Thanks, guys. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Fantastic. How are you today? Yeah, very good. Not too bad, all things considered. Absolutely. Yeah. So give us a little bit of background about yourself, Jared. And so, the, uh, the name Dot and Crosset. <laughs> yep, yeah, that's right. The, uh, the, it's a, the, the clue is in the name. Uh, we're a, a law firm uh, comprised mainly of conveyances. And uh, what we pride ourselves on is dotting the I's and crossing the T's. So, yeah. Which, which is what you need in a contract. That's <laughs> right. That's right. A dot and cross it. Yeah. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about. So you cover majority of Sydney. You've got. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. No, we've got um, we've got a few offices. We've got uh, one in Western Sydney, one in the CBD. We've also got a regional office in Mudgee, um, and we've also got an office on the Central Coast as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, we've got a fair bit of New South Wales covered there, um, and we do quite a few deals a year. We, we're a law firm, as I say, but we, we pretty much only do conveyancing. So we're. We're very focused on that and uh, we've got a really, really good team um, of sort of eight or nine licensed conveyances and solicitors. So, yeah. Really, there you go. So getting right into the topic, five most negotiated terms. You must have seen hundreds and thousands of these contracts. What are the five common that you've come come up with? Okay. Well, I've just, I've just sort of made this up and, and the, 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 these terms, they do sort of come in and out of, Vogue. Um, at the moment, one clause, which I'm actually not going to talk about today because it's still too new, is these so-called COVID clauses that are making their way into contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, that's maybe a, a topic for another day. Um, but um, yeah, the five most negotiated terms, I guess the number one that you've probably heard about is the release of deposit clause. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that, that gets sort of negotiated probably about 90% of the time, I think, in the contracts. Um, so what is it? Uh, a release of deposit clause is basically a clause that the vendor puts in that enables them to get early access to the 5 or 10% cash deposit, which is otherwise going to sit safely in the trust account of the agent. And they get early access to that before settlement. And normally it's only to do a couple of specific things, like, for example, put a deposit on another property or pay stamp duty on another property. Um, so I guess you can kind of see where the vendors are coming from. The house prices in Sydney and New South Wales are so high at the moment. Not everyone has um, you know, 5 or 10% cash lying around. They can go buy another house that they can move into to give vacant possession to that house. So they, um, they've invented this idea of getting early access um, to a deposit that's put on their property. Um, so, yeah, look, that, it kind of makes sense, I guess, from, from the vendor's perspective. But from the buyer's perspective, we perceive um, some risks. Mm. Um, you know, I guess from a buyer's perspective, we prefer that money to sit snugly in a trust account uh, until settlements happens. Um, if the vendor takes that money and goes and spends it on another property, it gets into some difficulties. And we, we normally sort of characterise difficulties as, as the three Ds, debt, divorce, uh, or death, okay? So if some of those three Ds happen prior to settlement of the property that you're buying, it may be that the vendor is unable to settle on your property. He's unable to give a good legal title to that property and you need to actually get that money back. You say, well, you know, you've got into a, a mountain of debt. You're not able to actually release the mortgage at settlement. I want my money back. And the vendor might say, well, 
guess what? We, we released that deposit early on. I, I, I spent it on another property down on the south coast and that's all sort of gone uh, gone pear-shaped as well. And I'm really sorry your money's gone. That's actually happened to us before. I think there's been in, in probably sort of a, you know quite a few thousand deals, we have seen a couple of cases of where the release of deposit has been used. Yep. The transaction has fallen over because one of the three Ds has happened mm. um, and uh, our client or the other side hasn't been able to get their money back. Wow. wow. Yeah, look. So that's why I think the solicitor is always hesitant to agree on that. Um, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah. Look, and th- there are some ways to mitigate it. It's, it's not sort of necessarily yes and no. Um, if you're a buyer and the vendor says, look, I absolutely need this clause because otherwise I can't move into my dream property and I can't give you this property, then there's a couple of things you can do. Firstly, you could you could try and sort of mitigate or, or lessen h- how big a deposit is actually going to be released. So you say, well, okay, you can release the deposit, but I only want you releasing 5%, not the full 10 Mm-hmm. That reduces your risk. Mm-hmm. Um, the other way that you might be able to reduce it uh, or reduce the risk is to actually do a little bit of ec- uh, um, a little bit of research on the vendor's financial position. The, the biggest risk is that they get in too much debt, and they're mm-hmm. not able to give you title at settlement because there's all these other creditors who are uh, you know, mortgage the property, etc. Now, if you do some research by doing a title search, and you can see that the property is either unencumbered, or maybe you've only just got one mortgage to a high street bank, then that might be okay. But if you see on the title search a whole lot of sort of second-tier lenders and caveats on title, that kind of thing, that is a big red flag. Yeah, mm. not ring alarm bells. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And where do you actually draw the line? Because if the next purchase, uh, you know, the owner of the property then does the same thing, is there like a cap on how often this can be done, the early release? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, a lot of the time that the when buyers do reluctantly agree to these clauses, a lot of the time they'll actually stipulate, um, okay, we are going to let you release that deposit. We only want you to release 5% and you can only use it for another property in New South Wales. We want to be able to see it in our state and territory. We don't want it going into state or overseas. They can sometimes introduce another um, condition that it, it, it it cannot be on released for another property. Now, I don't really get too hung up on about that because I kind of take the view that once it's left the trust account, it's kind of gone. Uh, you're relying on someone else to, to basically not release it. Um, so, yes, you, 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 it's probably worthwhile putting those clauses in there, but I also tell my clients when you release to them, there's no guarantee that they're necessarily going to abide by that. So you are yeah. taking a bit of a risk. Mm. So the safety of it is that if it is sitting with another trust account or another agent's trust account um, and a part of it is released, then that's the mitigation of risk, would you say? Yeah, yeah, that, that that's probably right. Yeah, there's, there's that, that that's sort of one way of mitigating. But as I say, you'll never fully, fully eliminate no, that. Fully. Once it's gone, it's gone. Once yeah. it's gone, yeah. Pretty much. Moving on to the second one, the land tax adjustment. Oh, this one is so common that's, to explain. Yeah, page two, <laughs> land tax is a yeah. Tick. What is that all about? <laughs> yeah, well, firstly, what is land tax? Because some people have the luxury of never paying it, which is great because it's a it's an insidious little tax that the New South Wales government uh, puts on essentially investment properties mm-hmm. over a certain threshold and they they levy it on the first of on the first of January at the stroke of midnight every year okay yeah. you get hit with a land tax bill now if you sell your property halfway through the year you do not get a refund from the office of state revenue they are absolutely start letting blood from a stone from those guys so you cannot get a refund so what they introduce in 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 these contracts of sale is well if i can't get a refund from the New South Wales state government, uh, maybe I can get a refund from someone who buys it from me. And that's what the land tax adjustment is. It basically says, look, 
If I sell a property on the 30th of June, okay, and I had a, a land tax bill of $10,000, basically the land tax adjustment, it says irrespective of whether you're going to pay land tax when you own this property, you might be a, you might be a principal place of residence. So it may be irrelevance once you buy the property, which is great. Irrespective of that, I want you to give me my refund. So I want you to give me $5,000 in that case. Yeah. So um, as you get closer to the end of the year, the pro rata effect of the land tax adjustment becomes less. So we've got a lot of clients at the moment who are looking to settle in December and they sort of say, oh, I've got this land tax adjustment. I sort of say, well, don't worry about it because the land tax adjustment is, is quite small. But if we move over to January 1st, obviously the opposite is true. It becomes quite big. Yeah. So um, I guess with, with the land tax adjustment, with the negotiations that take place, obviously as a buyer, I always try and get rid of it. Um, if, I, if I'm a buyer who's also an investor, I might not, be as adamant, I might sort of say, well, you know what, you're you're, a, you're an investor, you're going to pay land tax going forward. So maybe maybe this is reasonable. Maybe you just factor this in. Um, but if it's your principal place of residence, you other wouldn't otherwise wouldn't pay it. Um, then you know I'd probably try and get it out. But probably the most important thing um, for agents or clients who are listening to this at the moment, the most important thing is firstly work out what is the dollar value of the adjustment. Because the amount of times where we've had deals almost fall over because people have got so upset about this land tax adjustment, is it in, is it out? And then someone's just said, well, wait, well, hang on, what does it actually mean? How much are we actually adjusting? And we've worked it out and it's been a few hundred bucks. And it's like, <laughs> arguing about nothing. So, yeah, yeah so good, good to do the maths on that one, I think. The value. Putting it in perspective. Yeah. Mm. And the land taxable value threshold starts uh, Seven. Is it six, 629000 above that. Tired in that now these days. I think it's up around eight hundred now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It goes, up every, it goes up every year. So, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, don't forget the other thing is that threshold relates to the land value, not the property value. So, um, if it's an apartment, uh, apartments land value tend to be around twenty five percent, thirty percent of the actual property value. So, it, literally, there may not be any adjustment at all. It may be. Sort of- and when uh, purchasing a property under a family trust. Uh, land tax is always applicable, even if you're below the threshold as well, because you're not buying under individual names. Absolutely. There's no threshold available. So, yes, that's right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Would love to hear your thoughts after this about the upcoming proposal to um, uh, the uh, property tax reforms, the yep. stamp duty annually. So we'll have a chat about that a little bit later. Yeah. But let's continue. So number three, limitation on purchases claims. Yeah, this one, this one is a really technical one, but it comes up all the time. Um, agents who are used to amending contracts um, will, will record as 7.1.1. Change 7.1.1 to 5% or 3% or 2%. What does it all mean? Well, so basically there is a the starting point is there are very, very few opportunities for a purchaser to make a claim for compensation after exchange and before settlement. So New South Wales, and that, that's the background you've got to always remember, is that it's it's buy beware. Once you exchange, that's pretty much it. Now, there are some exceptions. There's some, some pretty extraordinary exceptions. I mean, the, the big exception, which we had a few years ago, a couple of years ago, was during the bushfires. Um, and I'll give you a real-life example, which probably explains how this clause works. Uh, a client of ours, um, they bought a property, a big rural property, uh, but has it had a residence on it. Um, and that residence uh, got burnt down after exchange and before settlement. That residence was probably worth about $400,000, and the rest of the property was probably a couple of million. Um, now, my, my buyer, he still wanted to proceed with the settlement. 
Just because the, the property's burnt down doesn't mean that you can't call for settlement of the property. But equally, he was also entitled to a claim for compensation because he agreed to buy a big rural property with a residence on it. So it was one of those few cases where he was actually legally entitled to make a claim for compensation. But that was really bad news for the vendor because the vendor was expecting to get a couple of million dollars for this. And he actually had an insurance policy in place, but there's a, there's a process for all that. And you know sometimes it needs to be appealed and that kind of thing. So when we made this big claim for compensation, the vendor said, well, actually, this is not fair. I mean, this changes the dynamics. I won't be able to discharge my mortgage. I won't be able to do this. So he actually had a right of rescission under clause 7.1.1. 7.1.1 says, if a buyer is entitled to make a claim for compensation, and that compensation in, in, is over 5% of the purchase price, and the vendor can actually say, you know what, have your money back. This is too much. Um, I, I want to put the property back on the market next year once I claim on insurance and that kind of thing. So what is actually negotiated is actually um, is actually not, uh, not so much that clause, it's actually that threshold. So what mm-hmm. vendors, solicitors will normally try and do is, is take 5% down to 2%, 1%, sometimes even a dollar. And what buyers, solicitors want to do is actually move it back up, so make the threshold higher and higher. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm. yeah. So looking after each is best. Yeah. best yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's a very technical point. Um, it, it very rarely comes into place, but when it when it does, um, you know, you, you'd wish you'd negotiated it properly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go. All right, next penalty one. Interest. Yeah, yeah. Penalty this interest. This is a good one. Yeah, this <laughs> is just a good one. Market now where, you yeah, know, settlements are being delayed. delayed. If the bank's a little bit slower or, you know, discharging. Yeah, look, it, the good thing about that one, I guess, for market participants, agents and, and, and clients as well, is it's pretty easy to understand. Basically, the principle is um, that if you're late to settle as a buyer, you should have to pay the vendor a certain penalty. Uh, they've still got their mortgage outstanding. They have other arrangements. Um, there should be a stick that the vendor has against you to compel you to settle. Um, mm. And so historically, that rate has always been somewhere between 10 and 8%. And that's been there for the way for a couple of decades. But over those couple of decades, market interest rates have come close yeah. to zero. So you'll get a lot of buyers say, well, this is outrageous. How can how can uh, we be paying 10% per annum when your mortgage is costing you 2 or 3%? You're basically making money out of like a huge amount of money. So uh, buyers listeners will try and pare it down. I guess if ever you're a vendor or you're acting for a vendor, the other argument is, well, this isn't meant to equate to the vendor's cost of funding, this is meant to be a real sanction, a real penalty against you to not be late, to get your stuff in order. So um, pretty easy, pretty sort of simple one to negotiate. I'd probably say if it helps at all, um, if you're acting for a buyer or a vendor and and you manage to negotiate somewhere between 6 and 9%, that's probably market rate. Anything above 10 is probably too much, uh, mm. and anything below six is, is probably not enough. No. Mm. So it is thoughts on that, guys. Are you, are you, do you guys sort of have a similar kind of thing when you see when you look at those? Because we normally see seven, eight percent mark. Yeah, yeah within seven and pretty, eight. Pretty, yeah. uh, but obviously, there's that two week window where um, what's that term so called? No, no, notice you, to complete. Notice so to complete. That's that the one. Um, yeah. So there's two weeks before it actually starts applying. No, no, it applies oh, straight away. Yeah, applies. yeah, there's two different concepts. So the notice to complete, so, so when you're one day late, that interest rate will start to accrue. Mm-hmm. The notice to complete is different. That that's a, that that sets the timeline after which the vendor can actually sue you, can actually take your deposit. So I'm 
I'm a little bit more, I shouldn't be flipping with other people's monies. I mean, the, the, the money is very important, but I'm more concerned about that 14-day period um, basically ending because that can have some very, very serious consequences for the buyer. Once that notice goes out, Diana. Well, that, yeah, they can take you to deposit at that point, strictly speaking. So, yeah. All right. Interesting. So number five, less than 5% uh, deposit clauses. Yeah, so this, this would be another one that you guys would see all the time. Um, and um, with my clients, I just I just sort of, I mean, it's very, very, you often get agents and people say, well, 5% is pretty standard now. Um, and I guess I'd probably observe that it is becoming very common. But you do need to be careful because if you're a, just say, for example, you're a vendor and you're you're looking to buy a property after you sell this one and you're looking and you're going to use the proceeds from your sale to fund your purchase. If you, on your sale, and you just imagine also you're upsizing, which a lot of people are doing. If on your sale, you agree a 5% deposit, you've only got 5% sitting in, in Paris and Baz's trust account, but then you go and buy a property and the vendor's pretty hard-nosed on that one and he says, no, I want the full 10. Okay, well, that's all good. We're all going to settle on time. But if your buyer, if something happens to him, one of the three Ds, death, debt or divorce, and he's not able to settle and he goes missing, all you've got is 5%, but you're going to get sued for the full 10, and it's going to be 10 probably on an upsize. Probably. So you're, you're in a world of pain. So whether it's 5 or it's 10, just be careful that they're equal. And I guess if I am the vendor, um, I'm acting for the vendor, I guess I'd always probably prefer the 10. I kind, mm. of, I kind of have the view that, look, if, you're gonna, if, you, if, you, if you can afford to buy my property, you must, you must be able to afford to pay a 10% deposit now. Mm. I think sometimes when they're borrowing 95% from the bank, I think that's when it comes a little bit tricky for the buyers, um, if they can prove that. Um, that yep. there's, there's not too many of those deals going around anymore, are they? Or, or yep. There's a lot of first-time buyers are still doing that 90% yeah. plus yeah. 92%. There are fewer, but mm. they're still, yeah. Mm. The property yeah. prices keep going up, so the, the deposit yeah. smaller. So. I'd almost prefer them to get a, a 10% deposit bond than, than a 5% cash for that reason. But, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and that's a whole new topic. Deposit yeah. bonds. We'll yeah. cover that one in the yeah. new and, and Also, on those five percent, once the buyer pays the five percent, and even if the vendor solicitor agrees, if they don't settle, the vendor solicitor can come back and sue for the remaining five percent as well. Correct. But what does that mean? For, for, firstly, just imagine imagine you can do that, and I'm going to tell you you can't. But if you can do that, you say here, oh look, um, my, my solicitor put a clause in the contract uh, that says um, you actually owe me another five percent. I mean, the yeah. starting point is they're defaulted. Right, yeah. so you know, trying to get it from them is going to be blood from a stone. From a legal perspective, is that even a valid claim? Well, unfortunately, I can't give a yes and no answer on that because the courts also haven't given us a yes and no answer. There's been some cases that have said those funny clauses you put in that say a five percent deposit is really a ten percent deposit. Some of them have said those clauses are valid. Other mm-hmm. cases have said no, they're not valid. So it kind of depends on how it's been drafted and it depends on which, which judge you're going to get. But I, I come back to the first point is it doesn't really matter. If the buyer's defaulted, mm. that means something's gone terribly wrong. Um, mm. If they can't complete on the sale, it's unlikely they're going to have an extra 5% they can give you. 100%, mm. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, the topic of the proposed property tax reform. What are your thoughts on that? The fact that you get to pay stamp duty and land tax as one on an annual basis. What do you take on that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's sort of the same thing, isn't it? I guess it's, yeah, they're not, they're not proposing to make it any cheaper over the long term. No. Um, and in fact, as I understand it, they're, they're, the revenue is going to get a, a, ultimately a higher amount of oh. collections because it's going to be blended, right? They're not going to sort of... Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Your passive income. They'll earn their, irrespective of whether there's sort of dips and troughs in the market, volume and activity, they're just going to get a flat rate. So it's kind of a smart move from the revenues perspective. Um, I don't have much more of a view of it than that other than I just, the big thing I hate as a conveyancer and as a solicitor is that the OSR have outsourced the collection of stamp duty, the assessment, the calculation to solicitors and conveyancers. So the people who actually process that, those payments, it's not the OSR in Parramatta anymore. It's all the conveyances and solicitors. So you say, how do I feel about this? What do I think? I just think a headache because it's just going to be another process that conveyances and solicitors are going to have to do and get their head around, et cetera, um, you know, in terms of filling out the forms and opting, you know, are you going to pay it up front or are you going to pay it later? I don't think there's any proposal for us to be involved in paying the subsequent year's land tax, but the actual... I guess the actual processing point on, on exchange of contracts, um, that will fall, fall on us as mm. conveyances. So and I think whoever opts to pay annually will have to be for the same life of the property as well. You can't pay a lump sum for that property um, in the future as well if they on sell the property. Mm. So that could be a bit of a game changer. Which is up, I think it's in early days. They might mm. change that because that would be just ridiculous. Imagine you buy and you you just opt in yeah. to pay it up front as opposed to continuing the uh, perpetual, mm. you know. I think that could tax. affect um, sale price of the property as well if you can't pay it up front. So yeah, mm. we'll see what happens. Yeah. Did you guys see that they, um, I think this is right, I think they they increased stamp duty in Victoria for certain um, houses or I think it's above sort of 2 million or something. Yeah, that happened this week, I think. I think that's right. So I just thought that was interesting, you know, yeah. whether, you know, normally um, the states and territories normally sort of follow each other and these kind of things. Well, so, the is higher in Victoria than New South Wales at the moment anyway. So. Yeah, and I think, they've, I think they've increased it again for certain wow. properties above a certain level. We don't do that much in Victoria, so I'm not probably uh, across as it I should be, but, um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Mm, yeah. There you go. So, yeah. Well, any final that. words before we wrap up? We've had a very informative session today. No, not 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 really. I mean, um, you know, there's a couple of points there that are commonly um, uh, that come up, yeah. and uh, I, I, what I would say um, is that uh, even though it sounds a little bit complex and convoluted, it's not really. Um, they are concepts that whether you're an agent or whether you're a customer or a client, don't be bamboozled by them. They're pretty easy concept, and also don't be a passenger. Uh, try and understand these 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 things because they they will affect you. Particularly the five percent and ten percent one. I think that's a really important one to try and understand. So, yeah, I mean, ho- hopefully I, I tried to make it a little bit clearer so people can understand. Obviously, your solicitor and conveyancer and your agents, um, they're, what they're there for is to give advice. But but yeah, try not to be a passenger in them all because. Um, you know, they're important things. Absolutely. And can you talk us about, say, for example, if, if you've got some buyers that are listening, what are some of your um, services that they can avail? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, we do a lot of work with Paris and Baz. Thank you. We actually settled for a lovely <laughs> client of yours yesterday, which is fantastic. Yep. Um, look, we, we, we act for both buyers and sellers. Um, yep. for, for the buyers, uh, we, we, we can do uh, reviews of contracts and, and strata report reviews and all that kind of thing. Um, for uh, clients that come through your agency, we're doing deals for $285 to review the contract and the strata report. And we do three contracts for that, for that fee as well. So if you miss out on the first one, we realise the market's a bit tough. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll give three for Paris and Baz clients as well. Uh, on the sales side, pretty similar but different. Um, we can prepare contracts uh, for $350 to get you on the market, uh, and, the, and that, that's the only fee you'll pay uh, if, if you don't sell. Um, and then there's con- conveyancing fees that apply at the end, but we're sort of bang on the average for those kind of things in the market, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's all about the service. I think we've yeah. had uh, a great experience with you guys, so I highly recommend. Thanks, guys. There you go. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And if there's any other questions we can answer afterwards, feel free to send them through. More than happy to help. Thank you and see you guys next time. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel for weekly episodes. See you guys next time.